for many thousands of people here today, this will be an hour of decision. You will never be the same today. Who is Jesus? Why cannot we escape him? Some say that he was a madman. And yet 2,000 years later, an entire generation is talking about Jesus Christ. Is he just a revolutionary hero? Or is he something more? All right, well, we're going to jump in. The title of my message is simply this, Grace, Trump Cards, and Turnarounds. Tap your neighbor and say it's a turnaround. When you encounter Jesus, you never leave the same way. What I love about the church is that he gives us permission to come as we are, but he, because of his grace, doesn't allow us to stay there. Because how many of you know we're going from glory to glory? It's getting better as we serve Jesus, not worse. And so I love the idea that we can come as we are, let's be honest, with some stuff. With some, with some brokenness, with some, with some bruising, with some sin, if you like, in our lives, decisions we've made, uh, kind of roads we've walked, uh, things we've done that are, we know, displeasing to God. And God goes, come with that stuff, but be sure when I strip back the shame and condemnation by reminding you of what I've done, you won't leave with that stuff. And, and I love the fact that God calls us as we are, but leaves us in a better position when we go. I want to talk about trump cards and turnarounds. There's a, there's a card game. It's called PNA. Anyone ever played PNA? All right, you're looking at me with judgmental eyes because it's got a, a really tricky name to announce in church. It's presidents, and my pastor Mark has called it astronauts, all right? So it's presidents and astronauts. But basically, the goal of the game is you get dealt a hand of cards, and the goal of the game is you need to be the one to lose your cards first, okay? If you, if you still have cards, you are the A. If you have no cards, you win the game, you're the president, all right? And then it unfolds, and there's a few rounds, and it's quite a cool game. You should check it out. But basically, when it comes to presidents and astronauts, there's a really cool thought in the game, and that is that there is a trump card. And the trump card is the queen of spades, I believe. And uh, is that right? And, and the queen of spades holds the power to change the game. Now, I'm not going to go into the detail of the game. You probably played it before I have at your lunch break and slept it on the table, and I've seen it all done before. But what I want to say to you is that if you hold the queen of spades, you hold the trump card. And if you hold the trump card, you almost dictate the game. It's a pretty cool thought that possibly when it comes to the Christian walk, when you get grace, it doesn't matter what kind of hand you've been dealt. It doesn't matter what home you grew up in. It doesn't matter how many business failures you've had. It doesn't matter how many children have walked out of your home because of your style of parent. It doesn't matter what hand you've been dealt. When you get grace, you hold a trump card and you kind of dictate the game. It kind of like it falls in your hands. You have the power to change the outcome regardless of the hand of cards you've been dealt. Tap your neighbor and say, it's in you. It's in you. And I want to speak today around a message that I believe God wants to get into His church in a day and age where we're assessing how we're all doing. How am I doing? How are they doing? Should they be? Can't they be? Am I all right? Like with online, it's killing us. Like, man, just like the, the assessment of how we're doing, the, the status of where we should be is, is breaking us down. And I, I want to kind of get into the heart of that thing and say, it doesn't matter what kind of hand you've been dealt, you have the trump card, which is grace in Jesus. And that's what happens in John chapter 8. In fact, some Bible translations, if, 
if you read your Bible in, in the pages version, in other words, not digitally, it'll say under John, uh, just before, it'll say, the following section was left out of previous manuscripts, which is the story I've just read of an adulterous woman brought, brought to Jesus. And you kind of ask yourself, why? Like, why would he leave such a beautiful story out of, or why would humanity leave such a beautiful story out of early manuscripts. I got, to, I got to kind of suggest that it's because it is so scandalous what Jesus did that they couldn't get human reasoning to put it in the, in the middle of the story. This, this is ridiculous. How can you? But I want to tell you, friends, it's sometimes the, the little inserts that were almost left out that have the power to change everything. It's kind of like in a whole hour of Sunday, you have one word. It's like Dill was, it's like my mouth was going like church news. You know, I was going for it, but you were hearing nothing. And then something dropped and God speaks. And that little word, that one moment has the power to change everything in our lives. This is kind of like this story. Jesus is going, by the way, John, when he writes the Bible, has a very strong intention. He wants to show that heaven came to earth. John, when he writes the Bible, is not just writing a story about Jesus. He has a far higher intention. He's writing a story of the Son of God becoming a son of man, so the sons of men could become sons of God. That's what John's doing. He's writing this account at a far higher level. And so when he tells stories, like you've got to understand, Jesus didn't come to improve your life. He came to give you a new one. He came to change your life. He came to transform your life into the likeness of Him for the glory of God. I love this. And so this series has been the good news. What makes the good news so good? Well, this story has got to be at the center of what this, this good news is all about. And so let's jump into a few ideas from John chapter 8. I think there are three key thoughts in the story that God wants to speak to us on today. The first is the trap. The second is the trump card. The third is the turnaround. Let's talk about the trap for just a moment. This is what they said. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stones. So what's happening is, here's a, here's a bit of a context for the story, all right? There's a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. Uh, in, in many ways, she's been caught sinning, all right? But in Jewish law, it would, get, it would allow for someone who's caught in adultery, for both caught in adultery, not just the woman, that's the irony of the story, it would mean that both are to be stoned. It was, it was law. It was custom. If you're caught in adultery, you break the commandment, we stone you, okay? Thank God that that still doesn't apply in 2019, all right? But what I want to say is that the woman was brought alone. This is interesting. Why was the woman brought alone? Well, because in that day and age, women were not really recognized in society as having much value. Now, it's not to say they had no value. For sure, they did. But a lot of their value, get this, was ascribed to the man that they were with. In other words, for a woman to be alone was a very vulnerable place. And so it was likely that she would lean into relationships with men because that is often where value would be given. And so she would find herself comforted, secure, but also some, have a sense of value in society. And so it wasn't uncommon for women to pursue relationships so that they could be celebrated as valuable. Bit of context. So when we read the story of the adulterous woman, because here's what's happening. We've got people sitting in the church who are like, it's crazy, man. There's some people out there that are sinning that God really loves. No, it's good for you too, because you're still doing what God doesn't love, all right? And that's why the story is good. We all, at some stage, have fallen short of the glory of God and continue to do so but by his grace have been set free. So when we read of an adulterous woman, I want you to just put your name there just to make the story worthwhile. 
all right, because we write her off as someone that has really kind of wrecked society, but she was just trying to get along. She was possibly just trying to give some value to her existence. She had been forgotten. She had been laughed off. She had been abused. And now she was being abused again, and these men were accusing her. And so what I love about the story in, in, in light of the theme God is trying to tell is, yes, there's some points God is going to give us today around the good news. But what I love about the story is this is a picture of a man rescuing a woman. Men, your greatest privilege is to redeem what's been broken with words in your wives and in your daughters. It's to redeem it. It's not to control it. It's not to kind of dominate it. Our privilege is that of Jesus, which is to redeem the brokenness of the lady in the story. But it's even bigger than that. This is a picture not of a man and a woman, but of Jesus and his church. And the privilege of Jesus is to redeem the brokenness and shame in his church. The privilege of Jesus is to step into situations where the church huddles and hides and thinks, man, if we can just make it through another day, if we can just be, no, there is a confidence. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You see, it is a powerful thrust into the story God has called us to, but it starts with the shame that we live in being peeled off. The turnaround, so when they come, now knowing the context, they bring her to Jesus, the, the trap, sorry, and they say, now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone her, but what do you say? They said this testing him that they may have something to accuse him of. See, here's what's going on. They know that Jesus was a religious leader. He was a rabbi of Jewish law, all right? And so religious leaders or rabbis would enforce the law or teach the law. So men who understand the law well come to Jesus with a situation that is outside of normal life, and they test him on what he should be teaching. Here's, here's how they're trying to trap him. If Jesus says, all right, stone her, then it overrules the kindness of the ministry that he's been living in. So they're like, we got you there. If Jesus says, don't stone her, set her free, then they're like, you're breaking the law. So they got him there. So I want you to watch the genius of Jesus as he is kind of lured into what they think is a trap. They said this testing him so that they might have something of which to accuse him. By the way, in the story, they're the accusers, he's the advocate. In the story of our lives, the devil is always the accuser, Jesus is always the advocate, he stands for us. And it says in verse 6, Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as if he did not hear. So here they are saying, Jesus, there's a woman who's been caught in the act of, in the very act, I mean, if you think about it, she may not even have any clothes on, she's probably some form of naked being humiliated in the public courts in front of a Jewish rabbi. Jesus is yet to look her in the eyes because he doesn't want her to see him as judge. He wants her to see him as advocate. He's waiting for the moment where he can set her free. And so he gets down and he writes in the sand and the guys are blabbering their mouths off about a whole bunch of stuff and Jesus just pretends like he doesn't hear them. The disrespect, the scandalous nature of Jesus. And then he stands up again and they say to him, Jesus, we're looking for an answer. What I love about the story is she walks in naked and ashamed. And they try and trap Jesus or trap her in her nakedness and shame. And Jesus disregards what they're trying to do as the accuser. And he bends down as an advocate and he starts to make a case for her. 
And actually, when the story is over, she leaves still naked, but this time with no shame. Ain't that powerful? I read that somewhere once. In Genesis, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. By the way, the only reason we started putting clothes on is because we thought our nakedness was shameful. In other words, who we are is not good enough. And Jesus doesn't put clothes on her. She doesn't need to be hidden, although there may have been a moment, I don't know the full extent of the story. What he does is he removes the shame of her nakedness so that she could live a life of dignity. This is a story of Jesus redeeming a church. This is a story of religious leaders coming in saying, these people can't, I can't believe they are in Link Church. Can I get two, um, can I get two uh, volunteers here quickly? Stevie, you and Sim, come and help me over here. Give it up for Stevie and Sim, they're getting married at the end of the year. I want to give you a picture just quickly of what Jesus as an advocate means for you and I. Why the story? Why it's good news, all right? And so, Sim, because you're the better half, I would like you to be Jesus in the story. You stand over here, maybe just on that point over there. And Stevie, I'd like you to stand at the back there by the stage. And I'm going to be, in some ways, the adulterous woman. But like I said, put your name in the story, all right? I've, I've made a few mistakes in my life. And now there's a moment where I'm trying to assess where I fit in. And John 8 was almost left out, but it wasn't, because this picture is scandalous, all right? And so, Stevie, what I want you to do is, and never do this again for the rest of your life, because it will not work out for you in your marriage, but what I want you to do is, I want you to accuse Sim, all right, of leaving her clothes out of the wash box, of putting the toothpaste in the wrong place. I want you to just, I want you to, I want you to come at her. Look, look angry. I want you to look angry, Stevie, even now. I want, you to, I want you to look cross. She can't see you, my friend. She doesn't even know what you're doing. So I'm going to need a new volunteer. He's so scared of getting married, he can't even like. you just like Jesus. We're subbing Stevie out. We need a new, no, I'm joking. Look angry, look angry. Point at her, point at her. That's it, point at her. Cross, cross, cross face. He's, she used your brush, exactly, cross face. All right. He's not actually accusing her, he's accusing me. All right, so look past her and shout at me, all right? No, 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 you stand right behind her. She is Jesus in the story, the advocate, because the advocate stands between. So the men come in, he has a woman naked and ashamed, and the accusers are hurling insults at her. She should be stoned. She should be beaten to death. And by the way, she had already seen a friend of hers stoned. If you read early on in the story, she knows this is possible, and she's fearing her life. And so she's probably in a very fearful, crippled, unsure, undignified position. And the accuser's hurling insults. But Jesus steps into the story. And when he gets down into the dust, he positions himself between the accuser and the accused as an advocate. And when I look at the, now you just smile. You just smile at me. I know it should be the other way around, but it's just an example, all right? As he accuses her, she takes the judgment on her back. And all I see is the smile of heaven. So, too many of us are living our lives here. Hey, can we just fix this up? I know, I know. Could we just, I'm trying to get away from that. I'm trying to run toward this. And, and Jesus has his back turned on the judgment of the world and his smile facing humanity. And we're still standing over here somewhere. Where, where, where do we fit in? Friends, we are here. 
We are under the smile of heaven, the day of favor, as we preached last week. Go and listen to the podcast. It'll encourage you. And as the accuser hurls insults, he stands as a force between, and they don't make it to me. So get this. When the devil says, Dill, didn't you? I'm like, sorry, I don't understand the question. But you, I saw Friday night, Wednesday thing, this thing. Remember when you were a teenager before Facebook was around and remember all that kind of stuff? I'm like, no, I don't actually because all I see is the smile of heaven and I live under the grace and favor of God. All due respect, devil, sorry, where are you? I can't see you under the cloud and the shadow and the power of the cross. And that's why we should come to church excited. You're not coming here to be assessed. You're coming here to worship. The assessment has taken place so that worship can flow. Don't be judged. Be joyful. Thank you, guys. You're awesome. Bless your marriage. Stevie, I'm sorry about that, my friend. I just want us to see this idea. This is such a radical story that I almost want to encourage you. When you're in the middle of a decision you know you shouldn't have made. Can I say this to you today? When you're in the middle of a decision that you know you shouldn't have made, I want you to see the smile of heaven, not the aggression of the accuser. You mean God, right in the midst of the stupidest call of my life, you still smile? Yes, friends. You know why? Because Jesus is busy taking a beating for you as you're in the midst of that moment, or has taken a beating for you. Like, like this is good news, right? You mean I never have to take a beating? No, no. Because it says the sacrifice of Jesus was bigger than the sin of Adam. There is nothing left unturned. Yeah, but Dill, you don't understand. No, I do, I do. I don't deserve it, I do understand. I know what you're gonna say, you're gonna prove that I don't deserve it. I get that, I understand that. But what you don't understand is that it's been paid for. And I live under grace. The second thing I see in the story, your silence tells me God is speaking, is that Jesus is our trump card. He's the trump card. We see a trap, but you're not going to trap the Son of God. He's got this covered. All right? The second thing I see is Jesus, our trump card. He is our authority. Can I say it like as he calls the shots? Not mom, not dad, not friend, not Facebook, not social media, not the devil. Jesus calls the shots. All right? His voice has got to get louder. Also, what you need to know is rabbis at that stage or in their their world, what they would do is they would tell a story without giving the outcome because it's important that people made sense of it for themselves. That's good teaching. And so rabbis wouldn't tell the story with 10 steps of what to do with it. They would give you an idea. Kingdom of heaven is like, you know, what about this? Or what about that? Or imagine if you did this. And they would, they would present an idea where you would then let that thing sink in and make sense of it for yourself. It's really important that we don't live on somebody else's thought process. It's really important that God is speaking to us personally and that we are encountering Jesus and not the faith of somebody else. It's ours. Uh, and so Jesus is the trump card. But now I'm going to give you something that is just, just beautiful. And I'm going to let you make sense of it. How's that sound? Jesus gets down into the ground and writes, and we're told that he gets down on the ground and writes, and then he stands up, and he says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. Question's got to be asked, what's he writing on the ground? I mean, if you've ever read this story and breezed over that and thought, ah, that's not important, I'd I'd be like, no, 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 you know you want to know what's, you know you want to know what's on the ground. Now, I've been in Israel, 
and I've been to the temple courts and I've seen the ground. I, I don't know exactly where he wrote it, but all of the temple courts is stone, not sand. I mean, if you're going to walk around there, it, it's, it's what it is, big, like slate stone almost. So, so, so Jesus is not, he's not getting down in dust and doodling as much as he's, he's inscribing something on stone. And so Jesus, they come accusing her. He gets down. That's fingers on stone, by the way. And he doesn't say anything. Nothing. And then he stands up and they're like, yo, Jesus, yo, 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 whatever. Jesus, about the woman, he says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And you know what it says again? Then he gets down back on the, what did he do? What was he doing? Well, there's another part in the Bible. I don't know if this is the, exactly what happened, but I got to think it might have been when the hand of God wrote in stone. And there were two times it took place, and it was the Ten Commandments. Moses went up the mountain, the hand of God wrote in stone, he took them down, they were broken. He went back up the mountain, wrote on stone again, took them down, and they were put in the Ark of the Covenant to be protected forever so they'd never be broken again. Two times. And it's almost as if Jesus, I just asked the question, gets down and starts to write. Could it have been that as they wanted him as a rabbi to judge a woman, could it have been that he made it very obvious because they held the law up against the woman, right? She broke this. And you know what he said? I wrote this. And in the, law, in the, in the Ten Commandments, I want to teach you a bit today. Sometimes we need to get into the Bible. It's not just doing church. Let's get the Bible. And, and the Ten Commandments, number seven is, do not commit adultery. Number nine is, do not bear false witness. Where's the man? Where's the other guy? Only half of what you're suggesting is in front of me. There's false witness. So number seven is, don't commit adultery. And they're like, exactly, Jesus. That's why we want you to do it. And he says, well, he is without sin. Throw the first stone. Maybe he wrote number eight to nine then. Finished it up. And you know what happens? The Bible says they began to drop their rocks. Listen, friends, we're not talking about pebbles here. We're talking about bone-crushing rocks. This was a violent moment turned around to the glory of God. They began to drop their rocks. And from oldest to youngest, they just kind of quietly left the room in case he used it against them too, but he wouldn't. Someone once said it like this. They would, but they could not. Jesus could, but he would not. What if Jesus wrote down the Ten Commandments as a reminder, this will break anybody? In fact, the Bible tells us at points that the law brings us to brokenness so that grace may encounter us. What, what if Jesus was letting them know, it doesn't matter what any of you ever do, you will break these at some stage. So if you've got stones, throw them if you've got no sin. And yet he was the one without sin. He was the fulfillment of the law, and yet he chose not to exercise it against us. He took our judgment. He was perfect, and yet he chose to leverage himself so that we could have his power. I love it as someone once said, Jesus is the great leveler. He's the great leveler. Oh, really? You've read that many scriptures? You've done that many good things? 
What about the other guy that ran away that just came back? He arrived in church for the first time today. He heard grace for the first time, put his hand up. Yeah, but he's got a little road to go. I agree, spirituality is a journey, but grace saves the worst of us. It's like, I just, I just, I want you to get, this is good news, friends. I wonder like how many of us have held rocks in our hands. I want to, I want to drop it. Because it's not worth carrying something that I wasn't born to carry. Jesus carried that. He carried judgment. He carried the penalty. He carried the punishment of sin. So we could live in freedom. I don't know who's holding rocks and staring at you, but they have no power. I don't know what words corrupt your thinking or hold you captive. They have no power. When they are in the presence of Jesus, they must leave. The third thing I want to talk about is the turnaround. This is where the story comes alive. The turnaround. You see, there's the trap, you're not going to get him. He's going to work the system to put his grace at the center. There's the trump card. It's like being in the card game. Everyone thinks the game's over, you're going to lose. And then you just pull out that little number, and you could almost wave it at them in their face and go like, listen, no matter what you do, even though you know I've got this, you're in trouble. And the third thing we see is the turnaround. The story tells us, I'm going to read it again because this is so powerful. Those who heard it, verse 9, being convicted of their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest and then to the youngest and then the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman was standing in his midst. Jesus wants a moment with you. And in verse 10 it says, when Jesus had raised himself up for the second time now, when he had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? I want to tell you, friends, condemnation kills. The thought that you owe something to God will kill you until you realize that God paid the price for everything you'll ever do for him, to Him. It will destroy you to think that there's still something you need to do for God. And so he gets up, he says, no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. First time she's mentioned the word Lord. She has an encounter with Jesus. Listen to this. Not by studying the scriptures, not by going to church, by having shame peeled off her back. I think the world out there is desperately in need of Jesus. We can all agree we were all at one stage. And the trigger point is not what they need to know. It's to peel back the shame that they live under. You are not judged according to your decisions. You are not judged according to your sin. You are not judged according to the shame. You are seeing the smile of heaven, and he was the judge, the advocate between that and you. He paid the price so that you could live in freedom. May we be a church that goes after someone once said, is our gospel big enough for everyone? I want to be that church. So let's talk about the turnaround. Grace is supply, law is demand. When you live according to what you do for God, it demands things from you. When you live according to what God has done for you, it supplies the power you need. Does that make sense? One is you extreme, your extreme effort toward proving yourself. The other is his extreme grace toward becoming yourself. 
It's a different thing. I, I love this. This is challenging, and that's the whole point of the series, good news. Well, it wouldn't be good news unless it was scandalous. There's a lot of good news, but this is scandalous. It's unbelievable. You see, I believe Jesus removes the lid of the law, which is condemnation. He takes it off. And this is empowering her to live a life free of sin because his words to her, or then neither do I, go and sin no more. What, he, what is he saying to her? He's saying, woman, not only have I paid the penalty of your sin, but I have stripped its power. What was sin's power? The law. Okay, you're not sure about that. Let me read it to you in Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. I'm just so excited about this church. We've got to get this. It says this, Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became the punishment for us to be a sin offering, so He condemned sin in the flesh. Listen to this, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law, which is our right standing with God, may be fully met in us who do not live anymore according to the flesh. The law lid has been lifted off, but according to the Spirit, only grace remains. John Maxwell has a, you know John Maxwell, leadership guru? He has a, he has a law called the law of the lid, which is kind of like you always reach some capacity and then you go to break through it and blah, blah, blah. But what I love about the law of the lid, when I read the gospel, it's not the law of the lid, it's the lid of the law. <laughs> you see, the lid is the law. The lid is you trying to do your best for God. Grace is God's best flowing in you. Amen. One, peop- one person's excited today. You see, I want to tell you, church, God is not constantly checking on your behavior. I think that would be exhausting for him. God is challenging your belief. I'm not going to check on your behavior because guess what? Sin produces its own destruction. God doesn't need to punish sin. Sin produces its own punishment. How many of you know that to be the case? Someone once said, sin leads you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Sin in itself will pay, will, will punish us. And so God doesn't deal with the behavior that leads towards sin. It has its own dealings. God deals with the belief that leads us toward grace because that's where the power lies. And he looks at the lady and he says, all right, lady, now that everyone else is left and it's just you and I, I don't condemn you either. That comes first, by the way. It has to always come first. No condemnation, a life of no sin. You can't preach no sin and expect people to live without condemnation. It's not gonna work. You have to say no condemnation, no shame. None of what you do toward God or against God or inflict toward God is ever gonna be held against you again. No condemnation. Oh, by the way, that should empower you not to sin. I want you to see that the good news is not just Jesus paying the penalty for sin, which is what we deserved. It's him stripping the power of sin, which is us thinking that we can work our way out of it. He strips that. Let me speak to a few people in the room just for a moment. You live under condemnation. People have said things they expect of you. You've ranked yourself against others, maybe Christians, maybe even people in the room, maybe your spouse. You've put yourself in a hierarchical system, trying to understand, am I doing okay, aren't I doing okay? Can I just help you with something today? All that stuff be gone in Jesus' name. Just take it off, just take it off, just lose it. Let it fall to the ground like it was never worth anything and let the grace of God stir something in your heart. I know people expect more of you, but grace calls more from you. I'll finish with a story. 
kind of funny story. I've been, I've been running, training for a triathlon, and it doesn't look like it because I'm, I'm born for the short haul. And, uh, but I've been running a little bit, and, uh, and I'm kind of getting into it. So I'm reading articles. I'm a passionate guy. So, like, you know, give me a bone, I'll eat the whole thing, basically. And, um, and so I've been chewing up articles. How do you run faster? How do you run like this? How do you run like, like I want to I kind of win, you know? And um, anyway, so I've been reading articles about how to win my first triathlon at 36. <laughs> Praise Jesus for grace. Anyway, and um, one article was talking about the efficiency of running. Running has an efficiency. I didn't know that. I thought you just go hammer and tong, right? But there is an efficiency to running. And basically what it's trying to say is, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to show you really, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of a picture. It's trying to say, if you're running like this and every time your foot's coming down, it's landing in front of you, you're basically putting the brakes on every time your foot comes down. What you're trying to do is when you run is you're trying to get a little bit forward in center of gravity and you're wanting to have a shorter gait, which is the, the stride length. You don't want to achieve too much at once, basically. You want to have a shorter gait and you want your foot to be coming down in position below your hips so that you're moving forward. It's so simple, isn't it? Oh no, feeling faster. And as I was reading the article, I realized I'm putting the brakes on. Because, because I run with what I think is a beautiful stride. It's probably only like 35 centimeters. But, but, but I run and I'm coming down on my heel and I'm like kind of lifting off my heel. And I just think, man, I'm feeling good out there. And then I read the article and I see people like in their 60s running with small little steps. And I always think, shame, and they're obviously not great runners. And then I ran alongside them. And then I went for a run. And as I was doing my big long strides, there come this little person just coming past me. And I was like, it's not fair. It's not fair. You see, they understand the efficiency of how to run. Now, <laughs> when I read that, I realized our Christian life's a bit like that. We, we, we're, trying to, we're trying to be the poetry of heaven. You know, I'm quoting all my verses on new version. I'm posting all my things like this. I've been to church six times in a four-week month. Man, I'm praying my prayers aloud on Facebook. I'm, I'm just, I'm absolutely killing it. Every time someone looks at me, I'm like speaking a language that only could have come out of heaven, honestly, because no one makes sense of it on earth. And it's all this kind of weird. I'm just, I'm just, I just, and, I, and I'm just, I'm striding. And then I hit a brick wall and everyone's like, what happened to them? They were talking a lot just the other day. Where'd they go? What happened? Because someone with small incremental steps of grace, I just made it into worship this week. I didn't even know what he's talking about in the message. I just, I just sat in worship. And then the next week I went to prayer. I didn't even know what prayer is about, to be honest. I just went to prayer. Yo, I praise you, Jesus. And I just, I, just, I just went back, and I went back again, and I went back again. And I went back again, and I went back again, and I went back again. And the person that was striding, where are they? Doesn't matter, because it's the one that takes small incremental steps of grace. You see, this woman, we don't know what she did after that. We don't know the outcome of the story. But what we do know is the power that stopped her moving forward was, gone, was, was given to her, or the power that stopped her was gone, and the power she needed was given to her. And I think my hunch is she just took a small step. All right, let me not go back to what I did. And then she took another small step and she was empowered for another decision and another small step. And her efficiency, the grace of God started to flow in her lives. Listen, friends, don't try and do it all at once. Just take a small step. And so I got a simple question for you. For the good news to thrive in our lives, small steps toward more of grace. You don't have to understand it all. You don't have to make sense of it all. You don't have to compete in people with scripture word puzzles. 
you just got to make a decision to follow Jesus again. And maybe it's to put down your marriage before. Maybe it's to put down your resource or finances before. Maybe it's to come to church again. This is your first time. Maybe I'm just going to come again. I don't even know what it means. Just a small step. Just a small step. Just a small step. But whatever you do, don't live under the condemnation that there's something you should have done. Friends, there's lots we should have done. He paid the price for it all. Stand with me this morning.